The Legal Corner Podcast Series. Welcome to today's episode of The Legal Corner, a podcast which covers a variety of legal issues to keep you informed. Hosted by attorney at law Colin Dinoon and communication specialist Leonardo Torres. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Legal Corner podcast series. This is our final episode in season three, and we are in the U.S. state of Texas for today's episode. We will be looking at from prosecutor to criminal defense attorney, and our distinguished guest today is Mr. John Tickel. He is the founder of the law office of John R. Tickel. Before I bring him on, just permit me on behalf of all of the members here at the Legal Corner podcast series to wish each of you a Merry Christmas and season's greetings and all the very best for 2024. We will have great content lined up for you in the new year and I hope that you will continue to join us. So I won't go into much of Mr. Tickle's bio just to say that he is one of the top 100 lawyers in the United States. He's also one of the top 1% of lawyers. He has won several awards, including being highlighted in Forbes and Fortune magazines, uh, the National Trial Lawyer Association, top trial attorneys in Texas from 2007 to 2023. So I'm going to invite uh, John on at this time. Uh, Good day to you, John, and welcome to Legal Corner Podcast Series. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm looking forward to our our visit. John, uh, tell us a bit about your professional journey. Well, my background basically was um, when I was going to law school at night, I worked for a uh, large commercial bank, got experience in the, in the uh, credit training, lending, loan review, which is a overview policing action of internal loans. I became a state prosecutor for a few years, and then I was wanting to get on in the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Federal Prosecutor's Office which I eventually did. I spent about 13 years there and then two years, two and a half years as a trial attorney for the Securities and Exchange Commission before I jumped out into private practice. And I've been in private practice for about 20 years, focusing on federal criminal defense and and state criminal defense. What led to you making that switch from being a state and federal prosecutor to a criminal defense attorney? Well, I remember... When I was new to the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Federal Prosecutor's Office, I was very glad to to get on in the federal system, the Federal Prosecutor's Office, after being a state prosecutor. And I read a couple of places where people who were older than me had left the office, and they both said, I mean, in other offices, and they both said, I just felt like it was time to move on. And I thought that was a little strange because at that time I was thinking I would be a career prosecutor. As I got into my mid-40s and had experienced um, a lot of different kind of cases, uh, I, I got that, uh, I felt like it was time to, to move on to something else. Plus, if I thought if I didn't make the jump into private practice, then I probably never would. I'd got to experience a lot of um, types of cases. I'd done a lot of white collar when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Texas and done some drug trafficking trafficking cases as well. Plus, I got recruited um, to go to the District of Puerto Rico um, to help out with the backlog of cases. It ended up being there for three years. So they have huge 
drug trafficking, uh, huge money laundering cases, federal death penalty cases, things like that. So I got to experience a lot of different types. Tell us a bit about your experience in Puerto Rico. How was that experience for you in Puerto Rico? Well, the the work was very stimulating in the sense that the 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 cases are huge and uh it's 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 always something very very significant is happening there it's a us territory so there's the federal law fo- law enforcement presence including the federal prosecutor's office the department of justice us attorney's office and it's a dumping ground for powder cocaine coming out of uh, south of south america and, and some out of panama and with that came not only the drug trafficking cases, but the the vying for territories within the different groups and gangs, uh, murders of each other, murders of government witnesses, uh, huge money laundering cases, and then, of course, um, federal death penalty cases, which have its own um, standards, its own protocol to go through through uh, the Department of Justice. Right now, why did you decide to specialize in defending people facing white collar uh, charges? As I said, after experiencing a few years as a state prosecutor and then uh, quite a few years as a federal prosecutor and, and getting to do a number of cases and types of cases in the federal system, um, I wanted to move on to try to use that experience to to protect people's rights and defend people. And it was natural just to switch sides to go into private practice and uh, especially focusing on federal cases. Uh, The federal system, of course, is different than the state system. And there's quite a few differences. It takes longer. The cases are more complex. Uh, It's usually a harsher system. And for all those reasons, it's... it's, um, it was time to move on. It was time to get into private practice, establish myself, which I've thankfully done. And the white collar cases are are a big mainstay of federal prosecution cases, as well as drug cases, computer intrusions, things like that. There's a lot of white collar, and uh, I was attracted to doing those more so than trying to just churn out only state cases, which a lot of them are street crime, assault, small thefts, prostitution, stolen credit cards, things like that. What was your experience as a prosecutor assisted you in defending persons facing white-collar charges? Well, aside from getting a lot of trial experience in as a prosecutor, and putting together cases, deciding who should be prosecuted, who shouldn't, um, I believe it gave me an advantage in in changing sides to not only have that experience putting together a case, getting ready for trial, but in negotiating cases, understanding the system, especially the federal system, and trying to take advantage of getting in early when someone's under investigation, but they've not been formally charged yet because there are several advantages or can be some advantages from getting in early rather than just waiting until until an indictment occurs down the line. Share with us what are those advantages that you are alluding to. Well, some of the advantages are 
first, just understanding exactly or or getting some some detail as to why there's an investigation and what they're focusing on and what the person who's your client potentially could be looking at as far as charges and then either dollar amounts or the quantities of substance that he would be charged with. Getting an understanding of that, plus being able to have time to get defense information to the prosecutor to show them that they're they are not aware of A, B, or C, or they're, they're working on bad information, if that's the case. And try if it does appear to have the uh, makings of a good case for the government, then trying to get in and and tone down the case or negotiate a lower dollar amount for the uh, sentencing guideline calculations, which gives a range of punishment for the judge to consider, or looking at trying to negotiate away certain enhancements on those sentencing guideline calculations if there's a borderline area where they may or may not apply. Those are the things that um, that you can get in, and it gives you time to get in once you learn that the person's under investigation, which usually you will have that time more in the federal system than in the state system. At this point, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back.
Welcome back and uh, thank you for staying with us. John, before the break, you were just providing us with some information as it pertains to the benefits of jumping in early just before someone may have been charged. I want us to switch gears a bit now and I want you to tell us what are non-traditional law violations. Well, non-traditional um, criminal offenses I think are very are very much included in in today's federal criminal prosecutions. Uh, those would be things that were not com- necessarily common law uh, crimes or traditional basic crimes. Of course, there's always been fraud, assault, thefts, things like that. But in the federal system, you also have a lot of cases that are uh, non-traditional or what you might call government-created crimes, such as cases that come from the ATF or the IRS, the EPA, cases that the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission prosecutes that may become criminal, that they prosecute civilly, that may become criminal prosecutions. Some of the examples I'm talking about are such as ATF, you have uh, some of their mainstays in their cases are possessing a firearm that's not registered or receiving a firearm that's not registered or selling firearms without a license, manufacturing firearms without a license. Can you clarify what do you mean by ATF? ATF, I'm sorry, the, the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms Bureau, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. They're off. They often investigate uh, firearms-related charges, firearms and explosives. So, other examples of what you might call non-traditional crimes, or maybe even government-created crimes, would be, say, criminal cases that come from the IRS, such as you know, failing to file a tax return or filing false tax returns or tax evasion, things like that. Other things might be uh, cases that come from the Environmental um, Protection Agency. Um, Cases that, again, like I said, that that come from the SEC, from their civil enforcement investigations might turn into criminal cases, include charges of selling unregistered securities or a person selling securities who's not registered as a broker and things like that. And then you have some other types of cases that might fit this category, such as civil actions that become criminal cases from False Claims Act violations. So there's a lot of those in the federal system that are what you might call non-traditional crimes uh, much more than in the state system. Why are these perceived differently by the legal system? Well, I think, like I said, I think the non-traditional types of of cases or government-created crimes, as some people might call them, uh, have become mainstays or more mainstays in the federal system more so than in the state system. And I think that's because of jurisdiction and the way the federal system is set up, such as they're set up to do longer term, more thorough investigations, whereas at the state level, a lot of it is just 
reactions to a robbery or an assault or a theft, something like that. And over the years, as government agencies have grown, they have expanded their their authority and, and power. And I think that's part of the answer as to why we have most of those. Now, some of them are perceived differently. Some are not, but some are. For example, if it's a just a failure to register and it technically, technically might be a crime, or if you have, <clears throat> say, an issue with uh, your own passport as opposed to trafficking in, in, in falsely created passports. Example, for example, you might uh, get, if you're prosecuted successfully, you might be looking at probation, which is more rare in the federal system as opposed to well what the sentencing guidelines recommend. So in that to that extent they sometimes are viewed a little differently. But these types of crimes would be more serious offenses. Are they more serious? Yes, in terms of the penalty that they attract. Well that sometimes no uh, for example, the failure to register, uh, doing something without a license uh, would generally be viewed as something not as egregious as just orchestrating a fraud scheme. Now, the exception could be if you are making false statements or using your status w- without being licensed to do something to create or orchestrate or be a, a part of that fraud scheme, then it would not necessarily be viewed differently or seen as less egregious if if that's uh, the situation. If it's just an isolated incident where someone fails to to register or get a license for something and it didn't cause a lot of harm, then it probably is going to be viewed differently. And as we get ready to go, uh, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in becoming a criminal defense attorney? Well, if the if the attorney is is eventually aspiring to go into criminal defense, I think it would help if they could at least uh, spend a little bit of time in a state prosecutor's office to get some trial experience and see how cases are put together for prosecution. And then, if possible, uh, if they're able to to get on or to get hired, <clears throat> excuse me, get hired in the federal prosecutor's office to to gain experience of larger cases and prolonged investigations. If if not, then at least spend some time in a prosecutor's office or in a state attorney general's office or um, some state agency that makes referrals criminally to understand somewhat how the government works and see how realistically you can put together a case and some of the evidence that you would need. And this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it, and I would look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you for listening to the Legal Corner podcast series. For more information, please visit us at our Facebook or Instagram pages or send your comments to the Legal Corner Podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.